Why don't you go ahead and open your Bible up to the book of James. James chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible on you, there ought to be one in the pew there somewhere near you. Um, Grab it. And uh, we want you to have God's Word open in front of you. Um, I have nothing for you. I apologize um, if that's a disappointment to you. Um, But all I come uh, is with this book, and my hope is to say nothing other than what this book uh, has already said. And uh, just to, to... wrestle it through it and understand it together. And so uh, if you don't have a Bible at home or one that you can read easily, take this one. It's our gift to you. We want you to have it. Um, we are excited to, uh, uh, to see those leave here and have to restock those. That's a, a great thing. Um, so James chapter 1, we're going to look this morning at verses 19 to 21. Um, I haven't been keeping track uh, but this, this may be the most ridiculous sermon intro I've ever come up with. Um, when I was in high school, or just graduated from high school, um, my brother and Beth's brother and another friend and myself decided we would take a road trip down to California. And uh, so we loaded up, and uh, we spent 20 days on the road. Uh, I think we did 10 or more national parks, um, surfed the California coast, spent a day down in Tijuana, got mugged in Las Vegas, climbed the walls of the Grand Canyon, Uh, and as you can imagine, plenty of bad ideas and ridiculous things happen along the way, Um, but the one that comes to mind as I'm, uh, as I've been kind of wrestling through this passage this week, uh, was one of the quirkier things that happened. For some strange reason, uh, in the middle of our trip, four guys crammed together in a 1982 Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme, no air conditioning, back windows don't roll down um, through California, Death Valley, you get the picture. Uh, I think a couple of us were like adding up double digits of same days in the same swim shorts. Um, somehow, I think my brother came up with the idea that our biggest hygienic need, um, the, the, the biggest issue on our radar uh, was the cleanliness of our ear canals. And uh, he picked up uh, a package of ear candles. Have you seen these things? They're ridiculous. It's this big wax funnel made out of beeswax, and you tilt your head over sideways in your dirty campground, and you put one end of the funnel into your ear, and you light the other end on fire. And, and as it burns down, getting closer and closer to your head, um, the idea is that it somehow draws out all of the wax and debris from your ears. Um, there it is. So what on earth does that have to do with James? Well... Um, James is transitioning here, and, and he's, uh, he's moving from the, this first section about authentic faith that is, that is tested by trials, and, and now on to authentic faith that is tested by the Word. And, and this authentic faith shows itself in, in how it responds to the Word of God. And so this passage, verses 19 to 21, um, serves as this spiritual ear candle for us. Um, hopefully not quite as gimmicky, uh, and I think will work significantly better. Um, but track with me. Uh, James is saying you need to hear the Word of God. You need to hear it, and your, your ears are plugged. You, you, you've got debris in your ears. Um, my, my brother had constant uh, ear problems as a young child, and I'm putting tubes in his ears to drain them, and, and there are countless stories of him uh, being told to put his hat in the closet, but ending up putting the cat in the closet, and different things like this. You, when your ears are plugged, um, you miss important things. And, and so James is saying you have, you have barriers to your hearing. You're not hearing straight. You need to hear the word. Uh, he's going to Continue to move on from here. You don't just need to hear the word. You need to obey the word. But this morning, that's 
the focus is. You need to hear the word. So let's look at uh, James chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. Let me, let me read it for us. He writes, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Would you pray with me? Father, help us this morning as we uh, open your word, as we come again to hear your word. Father, would you uh, unblock our ears this morning? God, we want to hear you clearly. Would you... uh, In your grace, would you deal um, with our uncleanliness this morning? Would you help us um, to live in such a way as to be humble, meek recipients of your word? God, that we might be built up um, for the glory uh, of your name. So, Father, uh, be at work this morning. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the, the thrust. James says, know this, listen to this, uh, my beloved. You can see his, his tenderness, he's passionate here, um, but, but he's pleading with them. This is so serious. Let every person be quick to hear. Now, if you're like me, this verse is not unfamiliar to you. This is an often uh, memorized verse, often quoted verse, um, one that I memorized long ago, um, tried desperately to live by uh, in, in the early days of my ministry, um, leading up to any board meeting or elder meeting or congregational meeting, you would probably find me sitting in my car on the corner of the parking lot repeating this verse to myself. Uh, and maybe you're thinking, well, that didn't have much of an effect. Well, you should have seen me before. Um, work in progress, but um, these are good words of wisdom. These are good, helpful Words. We ought to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. It's all over the Proverbs. Proverbs 13.3, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. And he who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Proverbs 29.20, do you see a man who is hasty with his words? There is more hope for a fool than for that man. That's, that's strong words from Proverbs. So this is a good thing to be conscious and, and to strive Toward, but I think James is, is more specific here than, than just this general command. It's not just good practical advice here. Um, this verse doesn't come out of nowhere. It, it comes to us uh, in a context, the context of this book, the verses before it and after it. Uh, and he's just finished saying in verse 18 um, that God has brought us forth as believers by the word of truth, that, he, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So God has given us birth by the word of truth that we might be first fruits, that we might live in holiness. And then he goes on to say, so be quick to hear. Verse 20, because anger doesn't produce holiness. Verse 21, put away all the unholiness and listen to what? The word. So I think when when James says be quick to hear, he's not just saying in general we ought to be listening people. He's saying we need to hear the word. We need to hear God's word. And so, he's specific here. How do we do that? 
How do we be quick to hear? Well, um, as I said, James is calling us to remove some barriers that would, that would block our hearing so that we can hear the word, to, to clean out our spiritual ear canals, as it were. And, and, and the first thing he says is refrain from response. That's the first step. Refrain from response. And maybe that's a little bit generic, but but, but James follows that first command immediately um, with two supporting commands. Be quick to hear um, means be slow to speak and slow to anger. And so James is contrasting this idea of hearing against speaking and anger. And so if you're going to be quick to hear, um, if, if you're going to hear well, you need to be slow to speak. We just need to be honest. Most of us love to speak. We love to be heard. We want our ideas and our thoughts and what we love to be put forward, to be heard. And we would far rather be contributors to the conversation, to be seen as the one who is teaching and the one who's giving rather than the one who's learning and receiving. And again, Proverbs has stern warnings for those who speak much. Proverbs 10.19 is another when words are many, transgression is not lacking. Whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Jesus himself warns, Matthew 12, 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Every careless word. That, that ought to make you tremble a little bit. And so it's, it's true. In general, we ought to be slow to speak. We ought to be cautious and hesitant to open our mouths. But What is it that's coming out of our mouths as we speak? Is it, is it wholesome? Is it loving? Is it filled with grace? Is it building up those who hear? But specifically, I think James's call here is we ought to be slow to speak in reference to God's word. Stop constantly speaking. Don't always be opening your mouth. Be listening to God's word. Close your mouth so that you can hear God. Stop trying to contribute. Listen to what God says. And don't be responding then to God. We're so quick to speak in response to God's word. And I mean that in a negative sense. We read and hear God's truth and we are so filled with pride we want to push back. Or we want to kind of add our own tidbit. We want to fill it out. We want to speak. God says the world was created in six days and we say, eh, maybe. I can add, maybe those were you know, millions of years each day or probably didn't happen that way. It's probably poetic or that's not, God doesn't mean what he says. God created male and female and that's how he defines marriage. And we say, well, that's a pretty outdated idea. And as long as two people love each other, um, this is a complex issue. We want to add our knowledge, our wisdom to what God has said. More specifically, when God's word comes pointed directly at us, to our conscience, when it looks us in the eye, as Nathan did to David, and says, you are that man. You are a sinner. You are guilty of lust or pride or anger or coveting or greed or gossip or slander. God is a righteous judge who will judge sin. What do we do? We want to respond. We want to answer. We want to give we would say reasons, uh, excuses, we want to defend ourselves, we want to try to justify our sin. James says, no. No, be quick to listen and don't, don't speak. Don't answer back to God. 
Don't push back at him. We ought to be like Job from Job chapter 40, verse 4, confronted with the majesty of God. Job says this, Behold, I am small, I am small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. I have nothing to say, God. I'm little. Cover my mouth. We feel conviction of God. And maybe that comes as you read his word. Maybe that comes just as the Holy Spirit is working on your conscience. Maybe that comes from uh, a friend, a brother, a sister, or a, a loving wife who loves you enough to work up the courage and risk putting uh, herself or himself in that place of saying, hey, I, I've seen this in you, and that's it's not good. That concerns me. Oh, we want so badly to respond. We want so quickly to answer back. Well, there's the, the reason it's different. It's not what you think, and no, listen, hear it. Even if at first glance it's 98% wrong, we ought to take it and acknowledge they're giving you a gift of wisdom and insight. And even if in their nervousness mixed with their own sin, their, their delivery of it was absolutely horrible, receive it. Be slow to speak. Secondly, slow to anger. Now, the word anger here, orge, uh, is, is not speaking of an angry outburst or kind of explosive anger. That's, that's not what this term really means. It's, it's speaking more of a deep resentment. It's a smoldering, burning anger. And some of you who maybe um, don't resonate with that kind of being quick to speak, you're more of a background. I don't want to be um, the one speaking. Um, you, you may identify more with this. You won't respond. You won't shoot back with an answer. You're more likely to just receive it quietly and walk away and burn with anger. Maybe anger against the person who approached you. Maybe anger against God. Um, I've seen this. It's so painful to watch. People will say, um, I, I see what God's word says. It's clear. I will call myself a Christian, um, but I hate it. I'll, I'll try to begrudgingly obey it because I see that's God's command, but they burn with anger against it. We fight it and we buck against it. And you may be told by the world that, that emotions such as anger are so deeply rooted in who we are and that we can control how we manage our anger and how we direct it and, and where we focus it or how we release it. But that anger itself is not something that we can change. That's just an emotion that's in us. And that's partly right. Um, that response may come from something deep inside you, something uh, beyond your ability to change. But the Bible tells us the gospel um, has the power to transform the inner being. Praise the Lord that the depths of our hearts are not a, a static, unchanging reality, but the gospel of grace transforms us through the word of God wielded by his Holy Spirit. And, and so don't speak back. Close your mouth. Put your hand over your mouth. Listen. Don't seethe with anger because anger doesn't bring about the righteousness of God. And I think the NIV gets this right um, as they interpret it, um, the, the righteousness of God. They have um, the righteous life that God desires. That's what it's after. James is talking about this idea again, connecting back to verse 18, that, that, that God, by the word of truth, gives us this new birth that we might be uh, these first fruits, these lives sacrificed to God, living in, in holiness. And the anger of man doesn't get us there. Your burning anger um, won't bring about the holiness that God requires. Stop it. Give it up. Hearing God's word, hearing God's truth, being convicted of our sin begins 
here, this, this refraining from response, being ready to receive God's word, identify and dismantle that, that desire in you to push back, to defend, to, to fight against God. Refrain from response. And then I think James goes on to say, um, repent of the repulsive. So refrain from response and then repent of the repulsive. Look at verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Now, let's just pause there. Um, if you're trying to figure out the logic here, and I hope you are as we're reading through this, the, the therefore at the start of this verse, I don't think is pointing to this first phrase, but to the next clause after this, to the idea of receiving the word. We'll get to that. But before we get there, we have to look at this, this roadblock. First, we, we must put away all filthiness and the rampant wickedness. You cannot receive the word of God when, when your hands are full of sin. The, the picture here is uh, a common one throughout Scripture. The word put off is the idea of put off clothing or put off a, a jacket. Take it off. Put it aside. And, and so what are we to put away? This is we're put away filthiness and rampant wickedness. And, and James is using just intentionally shocking language here. He's, he's trying to get us to sit up and, and take note how ugly sin is. It's filthy, it's grimy, it's disgusting. He uses the same word down in chapter 2, verse 2, to speak of the clothing of the homeless man. It's shabby, it's soiled, it's filthy. And what are we filthy with? We're filthy with rampant wickedness. Now, the word rampant um, could have a couple different meanings, a couple different angles that uh, could be coming from. Um, and you'll see that as you look at different translations of God's word. Um, similar maybe to our English word excess. Uh, it could mean um, that bit left over. And, and so I, I used 90% of the lumber and the excess lumber we piled over here. We had some left. That's the excess. Um, you'll notice the NAB, NASB goes with that understanding. It says, put aside all that remains of the wickedness. So the idea is um, maybe God has been cleansing you and you've put some sin aside, but there's some remaining and you need to go after that. Get rid of it. The other way this word could be translated um, or, or understood is that there's a lot of it. It's excessive. It's everywhere. Um, we have an abundance of sin. And, and the ESV goes with that option. Uh, put away the rampant wickedness, the wickedness that's everywhere. Um, the CSB uh, says the evil that is so prevalent and I think here is not necessarily that there's so much evil in you, but rather that we live in a world where evil is rampant, where sin is everywhere. Um, you, you turn on the TV, you open your computer, you look out the front door, and there's sin all around us. And so um, it affects us, and, and, and we're stained by it, similar to what he'll say down in uh, verse 27 of chapter 1, that, that true religion includes keeping oneself unstained from the world. And so whether it's this remaining filth in you or the filth on you because of the abundant sin in the world, um, the command is the same, put it off. You cannot and will not hear God's word as you should if you're still harboring sin in your life. You're still holding on to that. When I was younger, I worked uh, for a few months in a dairy barn. And, and I don't know if this is true of all dairy barns. It was certainly true of the one I worked in. Uh, it had an abundance of filth. 
Um, there was a large area with a concrete floor where the cows would come in and eat and hang out for a while before they went into uh, the milking stalls. And by the end of the day, that area was so filled with this soupy mixture of urine and feces, uh, and the farmer would come in with his bobcat and push this big wave in front of him as he tried to clear the floor. And, and then I would get to come behind in my rubber boots and coveralls with a snow shovel uh, and, and try to pick up what remained. Um, it was disgusting. It was awful. And, and try as you may to kind of tiptoe in. In the first couple of days, you're trying to stay clean. Um, but as the wheels of the bobcat spin and fling it everywhere, and he hits a wall and it splashes, you just get stained. You get filthy. And, and that's the kind of image that James is drawing here. It's disgusting. It's gross. You have filth on you. Get it off. And so... He's calling us. Take sin seriously. Call it what it is. Look at it for, for what it is. Don't make excuses. Don't gloss over. Don't pretend like it's no big deal. We, we like to talk about our faults and our shortcomings or our weaknesses. Um, sometimes we stumble. Uh, James says, no, it's sin. It's filthiness. And if you're going to hear the word of God, you, you need to quit playing games with sin. Quit toying with it. Quit making room for it and making excuses for it. You need to put it off. So recognize it for what it is. Put it off. Discard it. And because, because we can't take hold of the word of God. You can't go to God expecting his, his blessing and his, and his goodness when, when your hands are filled with the filth of sin. And, and, and we're not willing to put that down. There are so many today who, who take God for granted. They must think of God as some kind of frail, soft old man, partly senile and partly just a pushover. And so they imagine they can willfully go on continuing in sin, deliberately, obstinately living in the things that God despises, partaking in the things that, that put Christ on the cross, and, and then as if they can just come to God casually and expect his blessing and expect his goodness. God is not a pushover. God is not a senile old man. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. God won't be fooled. God sees through that. No, the call to come to Christ is a call to repentance. Now, again, to be clear, the call to come to Christ um, is absolutely open and even pointed at the worst of all sinners, right? Don't, don't be mistaken here. No, no one has gone too far. No one has done too much. No one has out-sinned what Christ could cover on the cross. Paul himself once hunted and murdered Christians and joyfully declared Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. That's why he came. But the call to come to Christ for forgiveness is also a call to repentance, to turn away from those things, to leave it behind, to, to turn away from sin and to Christ. And you can't turn to Christ without turning away from the world. It doesn't mean you need to clean yourself up or, or, or become you know, perfect before coming to Christ. But you do need to be willing to renounce those things, to turn your back on them. To recognize the, the presence of ongoing sin in your life is a, is a barrier to the work of God in your life. 
So believer, you're feeling far from God, stagnant in your Christian walk. I pray, but it doesn't feel like God answers. I read the Bible and it just don't, I don't, it doesn't move me. Well, maybe you need to take a closer look at, at some of the sin in your life. Are you putting off sin? Are you walking in holiness? So hear the word, refrain from responding, take that position of listening and and then repent of the repulsive, and then finally receive the rescue. Receive the rescue. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now we get to the meat. With meekness, with humility, receive the word. This is the opposite of the one who speaks back, who pushes back against God. This is the opposite of the one who is angry against God. This is the opposite of the one who who continues to cling to the filthiness of sin. This is what we need, humility. Now, we live in a culture that has some remnants of having been influenced by the, the Christian worldview. But James's audience did not. Um, humility was not a virtue in the Greco-Roman world. They didn't see humility as a good thing. It was seen as weakness. It was seen as pathetic. And, and, and I, I think we're going that way in our culture again. I think it's happening very subtly. Um, we, with our mouths, we might say that humility is a good thing, but, but I think it's lost. we've lost appreciation for it. James says, be meek. Listen, be docile, be gentle, be passive, be submissive, be obedient, be subservient. And in meekness, you can receive the implanted word. So what does that mean? The implanted word. How do you, how do you receive something that is implanted? Um, well, let's be clear. To whom is James writing this letter? He's writing this letter to believing Jews, to Christians. So this is not a call to salvation. He's not saying receive the word for the, for the first time, um, though certainly that would be appropriate. But his main point here, he's just said that God has brought us forth, back to verse 18, God has brought us forth by the word of truth. And when God gives this new birth by the word of truth, that's how the word of truth is implanted in you. And so it's not about receiving it for the first time, but rather this ongoing receptivity to its work in our lives. As believers, we need to continually be hearing the word. It's implanted in us in this seed form, and we need to be continually, actively, with meekness, receiving its ongoing work as the gospel grows in us, as it changes us and transforms us. Why? Because James says, It is the word in you that is able to save your souls. I'm not sure souls gives quite the right nuance there. I think um, in the context, maybe a better translation for us would just be save you, save your life. Um, This isn't some mystical save your souls. This is your life. This is save you. This comes back to uh, the idea we hit on a few weeks ago of seeing and understanding salvation uh, as something more than just a thing that happened at, at a moment in your history. Uh, It's not just a a one-time thing that happened at a point in time. So we we look back and we say, I remember that day, that moment that God saved me. And and that's true, but it's not the whole story. There's a bigger picture there. We need to think of salvation as, as past, present, and future. 
And we see this throughout Scripture. So one example, Romans 8, 24, Paul says, in this hope you were saved. So there's this past tense reality. You trusted in Christ, you put your hope in him, and and you moved from death to life, from wrath to grace. It happened in that moment. And you were saved past tense, but then um, you are being saved. We're still in the process of salvation. 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul talks about it this way. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The power of God at work in us as we are experiencing this ongoing process of salvation. And that leads to our final salvation. The completion of it. Uh, Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by the wrath of God. And so he's looking forward to the day that this whole thing of salvation that started and is being worked out will come to its full, final completion. And so you can think of of salvation this way, that we have been saved from the penalty of sin, and we are being saved from the power of sin, its influence, its dominion over us as we grow in sanctification, and we will one day be saved from the presence of sin. It will be completely and utterly taken away, removed, wiped out. So yes, again, it's right to go back and say, yes, on that day, the Lord saved me. That's, that's why, um, but, but, but then we ought to recognize that I'm still today in the process of being saved. And I can see that work there, and I can see that work today continue, continuing on. Uh, that's why Paul says in Philippians 2.12 that you are to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's happening. We're in the process of it. And how do we do that? How do we work out this present process of salvation? With meekness, receiving the word of God. By hearing God's word and not not responding to it and fighting to it, but but by putting off the filth of sin and, and willingly allowing God's word to be at work in us, to shape us, to form us. And here's the good news. It is the implanted word in you that is able to save your souls. That's huge. That that is what keeps us from utter despair. It might be tempting as we talk about the the ongoing process of salvation. We hear Paul saying, work out your salvation, and and we we see the call to put off the filthiness of sin and turn away from sin, and, and we get in our heads that this is my job, that I need to do this. God started it, and I need to finish it. And and. And there's some truth to that. We're, we're commanded to, to train ourselves to godliness. We're commanded to, to strive after holiness, to work out our salvation. But the reality of this striving and struggling is as we fight this battle for, against sin and, and persevere in spiritual disciplines, and it takes energy and work and determination, but ultimately it's the Word of God that brings the growth. It's the Word of God that, that brings the, the maturity and development that we desire. And so it's like Paul talking about the church. I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. So we say, I, I, I work, I strive for holiness, I, I strive to put off sin, but it's God who brings the growth. First Peter has a very similar passage uh, to James, starting in 1 Peter 1.25. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. 
So put away all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Sound familiar? So the, the, the word has been preached to you, so put off sin. And listen to this. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. God's word in us is like mother's milk for an infant. We need it. It nourishes us. It strengthens us. It gives us growth. Jesus, quoting from Deuteronomy, says in Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what we need. He prays for the church, uh, for us. And he says, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And so it's the word of God working in us that, that sanctifies us, that brings about holiness and change. We need it. Are you receiving the word? And so just on the most basic level, are you taking it in? Do you have an inflow of God's word in your life? For one, are you here regularly joining with the saints together to hear the word? That's why I'm commanded, um, 2 Timothy 4.2, to preach the word in season and out of season. Not a feel-good story, not a heartwarming poem. Preach the word because it's the word of God that that works in the church. It's absolutely central to to who we are and why we gather here. And so uh, we may have a a choir come or some other event or thing happening, but we're not going to replace the preaching of the word. Never, because that's central. We need it. More than that, Peter says, you ought to long for the word. Like newborn babies long for milk. Those of you who've had babies, some of you have young babies right now, what would happen if you decided, you know what, Um, for the first few weeks, we're tired, Um, you'll get mother's milk once a week. How's that baby going to do? Not great. Not great. It's not going to make it long. Church, we have a privilege that, that so many uh, believers throughout history and so many believers uh, around the world today would and have given their lives for. You have God's word in your hand. That is unbelievably precious. And, and if you didn't before you came this morning, we just gave you one. What an amazing thing to have God's word to take home. Um, multiple copies, no doubt. Read it. Read it. Take it in. And and I get it. It's hard. I'm with you. I hated reading growing up. I have have always hated reading. Uh, I have an office that is filled with books. Um, I have not read a single novel since college literature class because I don't enjoy the process of reading. I I don't read for fun, even though most of my time is spent reading. But I've come to love what I can gain from reading especially reading God's Word, uh, as Spurgeon would say, uh, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. But it has to be intentional, and it takes discipline. It takes work. And so you need to make a plan. Um, If you're not a regular Bible reader, here's your homework this morning. This is your job. Make a plan. You need to plan three things. You need to plan when you're going to read, and where you're going to read, and what you're going to read. So when? When are you going to do it? Is it morning? Is it evening? I I could never make evenings work. They're too chaotic. There's too many things going on. Um, I get up early in the morning before anybody else, and it's quiet, and I have space and time. 
But that means you have to go to bed early enough to be coherent in the morning. You have to plan ahead. When are you going to read? And then where? Where are you going to do it? Find a spot. Find a place that you enjoy. Make it nice. I have my corner of the couch with a lamp there and my blue pen and my colored pencils that I use for marking. And it's right by the fireplace. It's a great place to be. You make it somewhere you want to be. So plan when, plan where, and then plan what. Don't, don't just, don't, don't do the magical flip open your Bible. What am I going to read today? Um, you're just going to get confused. You're going to get lost. Um, no book was meant to be read that way. Um, Find a reading plan. Um, not many things you can say this for. I think we can do it here. Just go on Google, and I don't think you can go wrong. Just type in Bible reading plan, and I'll bet you two or three down is one called Ligonier Ministries, and there'll be a whole list of different Bible reading plans. There's, there's through the Bible in five years or through the Bible five times in a year. Find one that works for you. Find one that's reasonable. Get a plan and work your way through the entirety of God's Word. Yeah. If you're a first-timer, you've never done this before, don't start in Genesis. I know it feels great for the first week or two. Um, start in John, the New Testament. Start in John and work from there. And once you've, once you've got some reading under your belt, you can start to add in. But read the Bible. Make a plan. Plan when you're going to do it. Plan where you're going to do it. And plan what you're going to read and then stick to it. It's just discipline from there on. Um, but after a few mornings and a few weeks of mornings and a few months of mornings have gone by, all of a sudden, that's just what you do. That's just part of your life. And, and just like you don't you know, happen to forget to eat dinner here and there, you, you continue to get up and, and read God's word. But let's go back to James. Because receiving God's word is more than just hearing it. It's more than just reading it. He's calling for something beyond that. As you read the word morning after morning, as you hear the word preached week after week, are you in a place, in a, in a posture, where that word implanted in you is transforming you, is changing you? It takes meekness, it takes humility, it's humbling and even humiliating to be rescued, right? We want to be the hero, we want to be the one who, who saved the day, or at very least the one who, who saved ourselves, but that's just not the reality. We don't want to be the one who needs to be saved. Or to use Peter's metaphor, we don't want to be the crying, helpless infant that needs mama's milk. But that's what we are. You can't save yourself. You do not have the power in you for the change that you need. You cannot accomplish your own salvation. Not past, not present, not future. You are, you are not able to do the things that God has called you to do. You're not able to be the things that God has called you to be. You don't have it in you. If it was up to you, if it was up to me, to keep my own salvation, to carry out this process, we would lose it every time. Not one of us would make it. We would fail. But listen to this, the word of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is able to save your soul. And the word there, able, is the Greek word dunamai, from which we get dynamite. It's powerful. It will accomplish. It's able to save. Isaiah 55, 11. I'll start at verse 10. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, 
but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving the seed to the sower and the bread to the eater. See the picture? God sends his rain and it accomplishes what it sets out to do. It, it, it brings growth. It brings transformation on the earth. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. What has God's word been sent to do? What is its purpose in our lives? To save us. To complete this work of salvation. And it's able. It's able to accomplish past, present, and future. And so that's bad news for those of us who want to be the hero. For those of us who are proud and arrogant, who think of themselves wise and strong. Because that has to get torn down. That, that won't last. That has to be dismantled before the word of God can do its work or will be dismantled by the word of God. But to the meek, the humble, to those who feel themselves desperately in need, that's hope. That is glorious hope. Do you feel it? Your ongoing salvation, the work of Christ in you that he started on that first day and is working to completion, he is able to finish it. It doesn't depend on your strength. It doesn't depend on your power. It's not resting in your ability. No, it's God's word at work in you that is powerful to save. So submit to it. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Refrain from response. Repent of the repulsive and receive that rescue. We're going to close today celebrating communion together. Worship team, if you guys want to make your way back up. But this is very much taking this posture of meekness. It's receiving again the word. Do you see the connection here? The heart and soul of this book, the sum total of its content the power that is at work in it and through it is none other than Jesus Christ himself. The written word imparts to us the living word. The word became flesh. And so receiving the word is receiving Christ, and receiving Christ is receiving the word. You can't divide the two. And so as we partake of communion, we're proclaiming again, it's you, Jesus. You're what I need. You're my hope. You're my life. You're my salvation. I need you. I depend on you. I am in meekness and humility receiving your work again. I need it. And we continue to, to rejoice in and to cling to that saving power of his work within us.